Well, welcome. It's good to be together today, isn't it? It's just a richness of fellowship and worship and giving and worship and singing and in prayer time and, and reading the Word. We were made for each other. The Lord has put us together for a purpose, and we're so grateful that we can begin to experience that again a little bit. And so bear with us with the uh, the encumbrances of government that require us to do certain things, and we'll just do the things we need to do in order to have a good testimony. And so like you, if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. God's plan for a healthy church is our current study uh, through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're currently in 2 Corinthians and in chapter 8, just beginning. And it has to do with material possessions and uh, the subtitle, How Do I Know If I Love Money? But let's read our passage just briefly, if you would. As you're turning there, it's been said, Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not happiness. Companions, but not friends. Flattery, but not respect. Religion, but not salvation. A good life, but not eternal life. And a passport to everywhere, but heaven. When you look at it that way, it does, it's a wonder that we put so much emphasis on it, isn't it? We're going to continue reading what uh, the Lord has to say about this. Just in the opening passages, we'll get back to the verse by verse through this section in a few weeks. But right now, we'd just like to uh, take a hard look at these passages and then move into our text for today. Starting in verse 1 of Second Corinthians 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, for I testify, verse 3, that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, verse 4, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, verse 5, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. It's up right there. We started that passage just a few weeks ago, and after just looking briefly at those first five verses of chapter 8, in which we see Paul carried along by the Holy Spirit to help the Corinthian church and every other church after that, as you read those passages, see the New Testament model for giving put on display by the churches of Macedonia, which we know are the churches of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. So that's the context. Paul, we know from chapter 7, uh, had to make his way there. We know that it was difficult for him. He noticed that there was no relief from his difficulty in Troas as he moved on, and we can see now as he moves into verse chapter 8 that he talks more about the difficulties that the church faced there. So we looked at that, and it's likely that he's still in Philippi as he's writing this letter, and we noted that um, as we were thinking about what we saw in those first five verses of chapter 8, it would be easy to say, how do I get there? Because most of us would have to admit that we aren't there, and uh, it is, as we look at it, they were able to do what they were able to do, so it was proportionate, and then even more than they were able to do, it was sacrificial, and then they chose to do it, so it was faithful and willing, and it ended up bringing great joy, and we're going to see tremendous blessing in using a portion of what they were given to that they had to invest in eternal things. And when we, we think about that type of model, and when we and we talk about that. We don't really see that too often in the church. 
And, and there are lots of reasons why we don't handle what we have the way we should, and we looked at some of those in the last couple of weeks. Last week was Mother's Day, and we took some time to talk about forgiveness, but uh, we looked at some of those reasons why we don't see this in the church that often, and we were examining the, a very relevant question, is money moral? The last time we were together, we looked at it as money moral, or is having money moral? seemed a relevant question because of all the shouting at cameras that tends to go on about people who are wealthy and how immoral that seems to be. And we won't go there again, but we saw that money and possessions from the scriptures are neutral. They don't have any morality in and of themselves, no corrupting power on their own. The Lord really has given us richly all things to enjoy, so if he has given those things, he's not going to turn around then and condemn them because they create uh, those problems. The problem is really the heart, and we're going to see that. And that made sense as we looked at that last time when we understand that all material wealth is a gift from God's hand. And because he's the source of everything, obviously, he wouldn't condemn us for having what he has given. And, and whether it's great or small, the continued principle in the scriptures is this. How they are managed and how they are evaluated gives insight into the morality of the individual. Or uh, the way we evaluate it or, and use material possessions is a barometer of our spirituality. So we see that over and over again in the Word of God. We saw it there very, very clearly. And as we finished up last time, when we think about the good gifts that God has given, we were examining how we can know if we love money. And if, and if we've taken what he has supplied to us and then somehow supplanted him with it, that's the idea. Or uh, how the writer of Hebrews warns us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, he says this. He says, make sure, so very clearly in the imperative, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And just obviously, your life should not be marked with the love of money. And the back part of the verse is the reason why. Because he said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So what's that mean? That your security is from now on. That there's never going to be a break in God's supply for you. He watches over you. So we should be free from the love of money. And so obviously, your life should not be marked with the love of money. That type of Desire mars our testimony we saw last time. It, it places us in very bad company. It places you, as we saw last time, in the company of the Pharisees. It puts you in company of the unredeemed and, and the unholy world. Uh, it, it may reveal that you don't trust God to take care of you or, or that you get your joy and security from money rather than from him. And those are the things we kind of wrapped up with last time. So since it's been a few weeks, we'll just quickly review some of the questions we asked. So if we closed out that time together... I asked you a series of questions that can help you realize whether or not money has a too important role in your life. And and the only way we're going to get to, the reason why we're doing this background, and you know this, is the only way we're going to get to the point where we can read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and say, okay, that's something I can do, is if we understand really the foundation of all of this. Because there's no way we're going to become this this generous, this liberal, this gracious, this willing with what we prize so highly as long as we prize it so highly. And so we're going to move into some of those backgrounds. But what we saw last time out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, a very important passage, and this whole section, as Paul's instructing his son in the faith, Timothy, is for him to understand what to teach this church at Ephesus where he is. And so he says to Timothy, he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take, cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So I ask you two questions connected to that. Number one, do you agree that everything you possess comes from God? And then number two, in verse eight, it says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. The second question is, if you want to really know if you love money, would you be content with just those things, just the necessities of life? 
And those are not easy answers, are they? And it's hard to be where you're more than this the necessities and say, yes, I would be content with just the necessities. And the level of income and wealth are really irrelevant in answering those questions. And then we saw really a follow-up, and it just departed from 1 Timothy just briefly. But in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul affirms this, just kind of from the other side. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And so the third question I asked you was this, in relation to that one we just asked. If your situation will never change from how you are right now, so if you are really just the basics, if it's just uh, covering the basic necessities of life, if, you're, if your situation is right there and it'll never change, are you okay with that? And I think that's as, just as important of a question as the first two because it helps to kind of verify are you really content, as Paul would say, in whatever situation he's in. And again, I believe the answer may have very little to do with your current level of income or wealth and everything to do with how you evaluate it. But if where you are now is where the Lord will allow you to stay for the remainder of your life, will you fight against that? Will that not be okay with you? And then look at verse 9. 1 Timothy 6, 9, we saw this. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And the fourth question I ask you is this. Have you been able to put away from yourself the desire to attain things? So is something else more important to you than as you look at the world, your desire to purchase that next thing or have that next thing or whatever it is, you know, smaller, faster, shinier, whatever. You know, do you need that next thing or have you put that away from yourself? Because wanting to be rich has ruined a lot of testimonies and it's embarrassed a lot of people and it's ruined families and created a ton of missed opportunities with children. And the verse 10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And number five, fifth question we asked last time was this, have you been able to subdue the worry that's associated with a possible loss of your material things? And of course, that, that echoes well off the first two questions, doesn't it? Are you satisfied with just what you have? Wouldn't that be okay? And so have you put away then uh, the worry that's associated with a possible loss of your material things? And in this culture right now, and in the last five or six weeks, that may be the reality for you or for some. You have lost a good portion of what you've put away for the future. Or you have lost a large portion of what you had right now because you maybe lost your job or, or any combination of those things. So the question may be very relevant. Is Are you still consumed with the worry of losing all those things or the possible loss? Because the scripture very clearly says hanging on to things produces a lot of opportunity for sorrow. And then we looked at verse 17. He says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly surprises us with all things to enjoy. Number six, this is the sixth question we asked. Have you been able to divorce your identity from your ability to make wealth and disconnect your sense of well-being from your bank account balance? Because that's really what it's talking about. I mean, you're, you fix your hope, uh, your identity is on what you have. Are you looking, and you can really answer this question pretty easily, are you looking at your bank or your investment balance pretty often and, and, and spending your time thinking about how you're going to spend it? So that's, that's a legitimate question as we look at uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy. Have you been able to divorce your identity from your ability to make money? And have you disconnected your sense of well-being from whether your bank account is a large balance or a small one? And then verse 18 says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And that's question seven. Do you share what you have consistently, generously, 
and sacrificially. And that really goes right back into 2 Corinthians 8, doesn't it? Because that's precisely what they did. And here Paul is telling Timothy, make sure you tell the church in Ephesus they need to do this. And the question really is, is and it's instructed to those who have uh, wealth in this life, in this time period. So believers in the church who are well off, who have what they need, Paul says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So question seven, do you share what you have consistently, generously, and sacrificially? And here's, here's some of the qualifiers. Not out of your abundance. Not just when you're doing really well. Not after you received a big bonus. Not then. Okay. Obviously, if you have a lot of extra, it's going to be easy to let it go. That's not what we're talking about here. And particularly, that's not what we're talking about when we look at, at, the, at the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it's, it's really hard to answer that question honestly, but I think we know the answer, don't we, already? Because with the most recent statistics on evangelical church giving indicate that 50% of believers give nothing in the church, 50%. And average giving is about 2%. That's, that's, to, this, that's this statistic, this year, last year. People spend four times more in interest on debt retirement than they do in giving. Four times more. So that's a tough one, but an important question to ponder, and one that we probably already know the answer to. And the answer is probably no. And, and additionally, like we said last time, ask yourself this question. If, if everyone at Berean gave like I have in the past, would ministry have been able to continue? Or whatever church you attended, if everyone gave like you have, and what I mean is just everyone's faithfulness, everyone's generosity, everyone's sacrifice out of what the Lord has supplied to you to live on. I'm not talking about whether you had a large income or a small one. I'm just talking about was it proportional, was it generous, was it sacrificial? If everyone did it like you did it, it was equal to how you did it, where would we have been at this point? And so that's a legitimate question, one you need to think about in your own mind. And then verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And the last question that we asked was this, number eight, do you believe that giving consistently, generously, and sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have? Scripture clearly says in many places, and we've looked at them over and over and we'll see quite a few more in the future, that this kind of lifestyle leads to an abundant life. And we looked at a number of examples last time, which we won't go over again. But if, if this is the case, and it is, that giving uh, consistently, generously, and sacrificially leads to a better life than you currently have, then it would follow that this should perhaps be the most popular and abundant type of worship that we do. Right? If we really understood and believed that God is generous, wouldn't it be our favorite part of being in the local church? Our favorite part of worship, if we understood how generous God is and how much he abundantly blesses those who give, if we truly believe the remarkable generosity of God, which we see over and over again in the scriptures, and, and his ability to return what we give in abundance, and, and we're going to get to all that, of course, as he gives in abundance, and, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talk about all of that and how he supplies on the front end and on the back end. But here's the thing. If you answered no or you weren't sure about your answers to any of those questions, then that may indicate that you love money. And that's why we went through it. It's easy to say, no, I don't love money, but then we find out that that's all we're thinking about, really, and we spend a lot of time looking at balances, and our identity is tied up in how much our bank account, whether it's great or small, and our security is really hampered when we don't have much of a balance anywhere. 
So if you're, if you're answering no to any of those things, then that may indicate you love money. And let's just be really practical. You may have found yourself just pursuing money, and one of uh, more of those questions is clearly a big no for you. And that's the modern-day version of idolatry. And, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, very clear, talks about working just for money. And, and Paul is directing this comment to the church in Colossae, and he says, he says, slaves, or those who are uh, under workers, those who work for someone, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men. In other words, you're just not doing the job as, as the man's watching you, okay? You're afraid your boss is going to come in so you do a good job. He's going to check online and make sure you did what you did so you do it. Not just to please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So is God involved in the whole labor process? It appears. Does he watch what's going on in the labor process? Your, your integrity, your faithfulness, uh, you know, a day's work for a day's pay, those kinds of things? It appears that he does. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. So whatever it is, you do it for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing, so this is common knowledge, so this should be uh, known in the church, Paul says, that from the Lord you're going to receive a reward of the inheritance. So yes, you're going to receive your pay, and yes, you need that to live, but ultimately the Lord watches what you do, and there's an inheritance involved with all of that. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You mean when I clock in every day I'm serving Christ? Yes. Do you mean when I log in online and do my stuff, am I serving Christ? Yes, it appears that you are. Are you serving men? Yes. But if, if, you're, if the higher bar is what? I'm really serving the Lord Christ, then what is the work level going to be? It's going to be a lot better, isn't it? And that's the whole point of the whole thing. From the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So if you're not doing it right, the Lord knows and and he'll reward you appropriately as well. So when you're working just for money and not just and and not just to honor the Lord, that's idolatry. You, you've replaced you've replaced the true focus of what you're doing on the thing that the Lord supplies instead of on Him. And you can love money and not have a lot of it, or you can love money and have a lot of it. And 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 when you're doing well financially, and then you find your best satisfaction, see that's the love of money. And when your sense of security comes with how well invested you are or the size of your checking your savings account, that's the love of money and that's idolatry. And, and when you, when you die, you're going to leave it behind. We saw that in 1 Timothy 6, 7. We brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And we need to realize that the only thing that's going to welcome you into heaven will be what you sent on ahead. And again, we saw that last week from 1 Timothy 6, 18. We read it just a moment ago. Instruct them to do good, those who are rich in this life and be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. And here's the thing, verse 19 said, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. But then, you know, it's a very clear warning rings out so clearly from the word of God in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. And we can't get away from this because he just gets repeated over and over again. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. And there are plenty of examples of that, and you don't have to look very far in Scripture. How about Balaam? Balaam sinned and attempted to put a curse on God's people for money. And Achan grabbed up some of what he wasn't supposed to grab up, what was consecrated to the Lord, and caused Israel's army to be defeated, and many to lose their lives, including his own family. And Delilah betrayed Samson for 
money, betrayed a secret, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit during the time of the early church. What did they say? They said they were going to give a certain amount and then didn't, but said that they did. That's what it was. And what did the Lord do? He killed them both right in front of everybody. Judas betrayed Jesus for money. People steal identities and leave whole families destitute. Retired adults are conned out of an entire life savings for money. So it's not good company. Temptation, snares, harmful desires, ruin, grief, uh, destruction, wandering from the faith, pierced through. I mean, these, these are these are some serious. This is some serious language. But on the other side, Matthew six thirty three: Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It's also very clear that we should love God, we should serve Him, we should honor Him, take what He gives us as a test to express our love to Him. We just see that over and over again, a very, a very winsome approach to that, which is something God supplies anyway. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, Agar had it right. He said, keep deception and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or that I not be in want and steal and feign the name of my God. We can have a lot and forget God, and we can have a little and forget Him. And Agar just wanted total reliance on God's sovereignty, didn't he? Because he knew his own nature, didn't he? Or just take care of all that for me. My requests are just make sure I have what I need. And has God already said that he would do that? Of course he has. But he knew his own heart tendencies. We know ours, don't we? Now, as I said last time, Jesus had a lot to say about the love of money, and we're going to kind of segue into that right now. We're going to take four passages of Scripture, which I'm going to have you turn to, because I'd like you to make some notes uh, in, on your digital pad or in your Bible, because I think it'll be helpful for you. And these are all great cross-references to what we've been looking at. But he had a lot of comments, of course, about this to help us identify our true desires and our innermost thoughts. I've actually talked about money and possessions twice as often as he talked about heaven and hell. So I think it was important, and he knew it was important. And so he focused on it. And so we're going to see, Lord willing, this week and next, some examples of people who loved money and, and some who realized that and did the right thing and then some not so much. And I find these passages to be very enlightening for me personally and they really drive home this character issue of the love of money and how our attitude about material things and, and uh, it really is a barometer of where we are spiritually. And we're going to see this over and over again. Look, the first one is Luke 19. I'd like you to turn there. Luke 19, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. We're just going to be right here in the Gospels today uh, for, the next time, for the rest of the time that we're together. Luke 19, verse 1. And this is the story of Zacchaeus. Every kid knows this story. He entered Jericho and was passing through. So this is Jesus, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So we know we're on the right track. We're going to get a kind of an idea of what this looks like. And you know the story. Jesus um, invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is a Jewish tax collector, so uh, most of the Jews looked at him as if he were collaborating with the enemy constantly. And we know that his character wasn't that great, and he was very wealthy, so that means he was extorting from people more than he was supposed to have. He would have had a normal salary from the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jews, but he was very wealthy, so something was going on. And so verse 3 says this, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was, in, was small in stature. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a 
kids, sycamore tree, that's right, in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down, verse 6, and received him gladly, verse 7, when they saw it, they all began to grumble. So everybody who's watching and standing around and trying to talk to Jesus sees this happen, and they're kind of beetling their eyebrows and saying this is a really bad thing. And uh, they all began to grumble and say, you know, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Uh, obviously, just kind of a background, Zacchaeus had been listening to Jesus. He had been able to hear Jesus' teaching and hear of Jesus' teaching, no doubt. And because he talks to so many people every day, Jesus came up in his conversations, I'm sure, over and over again. He was really the talk of all that was going on in Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding area. And sometime during that time period of listening to Jesus, Zacchaeus had repented and believed. Now, no one knew this. And they all just looked at him like he's just a sinner and he collaborates with the enemy and he collects more taxes and he's very wealthy and just a very not nice guy. And that's what they're thinking. But something has gone on here and Jesus knows about it and Zacchaeus knows about it, but nobody else does. And the text doesn't give us that narrative. It doesn't say he came to faith and believed or he repented. It only gives us the resulting fruit and then Jesus' comments on it. And we've talked about these many, many times, but listen to his response to Jesus. In verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped. So Jesus has has consented to come and spend some time at his house. And while they're walking along, Zacchaeus stops and he turns to Jesus and he says this, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Now, if there's anyone who could be classified as someone who loved money, this would be the guy. And so what did, what did uh, Zacchaeus say? Right away, following his repentance and his belief or his salvation, he says, an immediate response in a fruit of repentance, and in this case, it was financial. And Jesus' response here is important. He didn't say, you know, that's a super nice thing to do, and so thoughtful. And there'll be lots of people that would really like that. And I'm sure there's plenty of need, and you can spread that around. He didn't say any of that. It's going to make a big impact on those you've defrauded. He didn't say that. What did he say? Verse 9. Jesus said to them, to him, but everybody can hear, today, salvation has what? Come to this house. And that's a pretty surprising statement, isn't it? But here's the thing. The obvious indicator of Zacchaeus' conversion was what? His new attitude towards money. Because this is a huge departure from how he was not that long before. And it's a big change from what he demonstrated to everyone. And we know from Luke chapter 3, we won't look there, that he collected more than he was required and he just wanted to accumulate money. And we know that tax collectors used extortion and they used robbery. And they were certainly not concerned with the poor or meeting the needs or being generous. But his heart was so dramatically changed that he wanted to restore four times what he'd taken. Not just what he'd taken, which would have been sufficient, but four times what he'd taken. And his priorities about material things were so altered by his relationship to the Messiah that he wanted to give his money to whomever had need. And he was looking for opportunities to do that. And that sounds remotely familiar to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I love that passage. I love the passage because kids love it. I love it because he's a little guy and all the kids really relate to that. But I love it more because this is very clearly somebody who loved money 
And that was obviously pointed out to him as he heard Jesus and heard about Jesus, and he repented and believed. And the very first thing he did was show that there was fruit of repentance. And the thing he loved the most became the thing that he realized he could give away. And the point, obviously, is, is that fruit of repentance. We've talked about that at, at length. But his willingness and his eagerness to give away what he had not so long before cherished and loved, Jesus observes that and, and that, that indicates salvation. Now, giving away your money, does that save you? No. But because that was the thing that was his big holdup, the fact that he had begun to do that, Jesus recognized in his own heart that there had been a change. And so we can rely on Jesus' comments there. Now, next illustration is from Luke 18. So if you look there, please, Luke 18, back up just one, one chapter. It's also found in Matthew 19, Mark 10. So it's cross-referenced fairly well in the Gospels. But Luke 18, verse 18 is where we're going to pick up. Luke 18, verse 18. Here's another person who loved money. Let's see what he does with it. A ruler questioned him, Luke 18, 18, talking to Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you no doubt remember this guy and perhaps know someone who is like this person. He is an earnest, driven, successful professional. He had a lot of things going for him, probably very comfortable in life, respected position. But there was obviously something concerning him as he looked around at his very comfortable life. He still had a question mark over all of that. And it had everything... He had everything in this life, of course, and he was a little concerned that he didn't have everything together for the next. And that's an important thing to ask. Eternal life was the question, so this is a good thought on his part. And then verse 19 says this, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Twenty, you, Verse 20, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And, verse 20, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So, Jesus starts here. Do commandments save you? No. But Jesus starts here. And again, it appears morally that this guy has it all together. He, he appears he has it all together as a professional. He has all, it all together as a, in his position. He has a lot of things going for him. And he apparently um, is probably thinking to himself, so far, so good. I've kept all those things from my youth. I've uh, I have all my I's dotted. I have all my T's crossed. This guy probably thinks he's squared away. What he perhaps should have said was, you know, I try to keep those laws, but I can't do it no matter how hard I try. And then Jesus would have said, that's great, because that's the reason why I'm here. But that's not what he said. He said, all these things I've kept in my use. So Jesus, of course, knowing the heart of this guy, gives him the bottom line. Verse 22, look there. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all, your possess, all you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Give it all away, and you're going to lay up treasure in heaven, and come and follow me, and you'll be a disciple. So Jesus will know that he has repented when what? When he's willing to give up all that he has. Everything he values so highly. And it, and it wouldn't be a problem if this young man understood that everything he has and everything that he is has come as a gift from God. So, how does this young professional react to that question? Verse 23, But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And he was sad because he would have had to turn away from his material possessions to grasp eternal life. That's the core question. He said, what can I do 
to inherit eternal life. And, and so Jesus says, give away all that you have. And as it relates to this young rich professional, then it's the opposite. His unwillingness to change his heart towards material possessions was evidence of his rejection of salvation. He found his security and his identity in what he possessed, and so he had replaced the God who is so generous and so faithful to his people with the sum of his possessions and his position. And Jesus makes a very interesting observation which allows the passage to move out of the situation here and to have a much broader application uh, and, and promote some introspection among all who are listening. And he says this in verse 24, And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' observation is fairly simple. Here it is. Your attitude towards material things can create a formidable barrier to your salvation. And it's very easy to lose perspective. Now, giving everything away, would that have saved the rich young ruler? No. Salvation doesn't come by giving things away. It didn't come by Zacchaeus giving things away. Salvation comes by repentant faith. Confessing Jesus as Lord. And we know that. So we know that we're not promoting some a buy your way in kind of scheme. But the fact of the matter is, is that the fruit of repentance would reflect what his greatest love was prior to salvation, just like it did with Zacchaeus. But this guy went away sad because he owned a lot of things. He was extremely rich. And, and here's the thing, and I think this is the reason why Jesus says this last part, sometimes the greater the accumulation of wealth, the greater the presence of deceptive feelings. In other words, the greater feelings of security. And we asked that question earlier. And, and the greater the feelings of insulation from catastrophe. And sometimes men, men fall, can fall into this as well as women. The greater your, your bank account and the greater your investment, the more you think you've insulated yourself from catastrophe. And many have found in the last five weeks that that wasn't the case at all. Or the greater the feeling of self-sufficiency, that you've got it all together. And these are all very deceptive and can be a big roadblock to saving faith, which is why Jesus says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So it's no more difficult for them to repent than anyone else. The problem is, is that wealth has deceived them into thinking that everything's okay, see? And we're going to see that in our next illustration, which is found in Matthew 13. So please turn there, would you? Matthew 13. And this is a little different than what we usually do. Of course, we're usually going verse by verse through 2 Corinthians, but we're we're taking some time to build this foundation, and so I think it'll be enriching for you as you follow along with us. Matthew, 8, Matthew 13, verse 18 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to read through verse 22. And Jesus has given the parable of the sower and the seed, and he's going to explain it so that everyone can understand. So that's the context here. So his disciples, after he'd left teaching everyone else, asked him privately, what did this mean? And so he is going to explain it. And here's where we get a very important principle that we've been looking at already. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Verse 20, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when Affliction or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, verse 22 is where we're going to make our point, so look there if you would. And the one on whom the seed was sowed among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and mark this, 
The deceitfulness of what? Of wealth. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And here we see the same thing that we saw with the rich young ruler. Jesus makes the exact same point. He wanted them to understand that the possession of material things is deceptive. How is that? Well, when you have money, it's easy to believe that you have everything. And that was the whole point of the, of the seed that fell amongst the thorns. It was precisely the point of Luke 18.24 we looked at just a moment ago. And when Jesus said, how, are, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven? See, you can have this feeling that everything's well in your life if you're wealthy. And, you, and perhaps you've witnessed to very wealthy people and you've found that that be the case. And many times that answer is, I'm a good person. Because they think about all the wealth that they have and everything good that they've done and they think I'm a good person and so I'm not like everybody else. And so it can be deceptive. You think that everything's okay. And, and, and some people think that if you're rich, it's an automatic sign that God must like you. And, and you must be in favor with God because you're wealthy. And, and, and that was the reason for the disciples' question to Jesus, the statement to that effect. What, what are you talking about? Who can be saved? In, ver, in Luke 18, 25, it says, For it's easier, Jesus says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what, is the, what does his disciples say immediately after that? Then, then who can be saved? If a rich man's not a sign of your blessing, then who is? how does salvation come to somebody anyway? And how would we even know that they're in your favor? The automatic connected wealth with God must be happy with you. So it's deceptive. And they were deceived too, see? And, and it's the same among those who've been deceived by the prosperity gospel. When you point out that it isn't a gospel at all, but a complex deception to make those who are shepherding these people wealthy, it's not unusual for the response to be, how can that be? Look how much the Lord has blessed them. And we see that over and over again, don't you? If you follow any of these people on Facebook or any of the social media, just as kind of a reminder of what you don't want to be like, which I do, and then when somebody criticizes something that they do, there's a hundred comments that say, God obviously is blessing them. Look at what he's given them. And so it's, it's just as deceptive now as it ever has been. That we think somehow connected to wealth is God's blessing or God's favor and everything's okay. And that is not the case. That's why we say you can have a lot and be deceived by it. You have very little and be deceived by it. So just to sum up what we've seen in the last couple of illustrations, you know, Jesus' continued point is that possession of money and material wealth can be deceptive. It certainly is an indicator of, of, your, of uh, your spiritual morality. It certainly is an indicator of your barometer where you are spiritually. There can be a deception about whether or not you're being blessed. It, it confuses what is important in life, like the rich young professional. He, he had things all out of skew. He thought his position and his wealth were more important, obviously, than the long tomorrow. Because he walked away sad and didn't do what Jesus said. It, having wealth can choke the word that we just saw just a minute ago and make it and make it unclear. Having uh, things or desiring to acquire them can cause you to, and we're going to look at this later, but it can cause you to change your convictions. In other words, you're, you're possessed by getting more and more. What's your price? So that you'll change what you really believe, what you think you believe, to do what it takes to get what you need, see? And so there's a lot of deception that goes on there, and the love of money can pierce you through with many griefs, and it's caused lots of embarrassment. We're going to look at that later. Now, look at our last illustrations. We're going to wrap up. Look at Luke 12. Turn there if you would. Luke 12, verse 16. We'll read through verse 21. This is um, someone who loved money. Let's see what they did with it. 
And there's some other illustration. Uh, there's some other points here we want to make as we go through, and I think it'll be enlightening for you. But Luke chapter 12, verse 16, it starts this way, and he told them a parable, saying. So in other words, Jesus is going to, uh, he's going to make a heavenly point by using an earthly situation. And so he's going to do it now again. And most of the passages we've studied are those things. But you can see how often he cycled around to make sure they understood this deceptiveness connected with what the world has in it and how the Lord has provided those things to people. So look at verse 12 or 16, chapter 12 or 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. So again, focusing on those who are wealthy, and he brings up this subject, and he's using a teachable moment here with his disciples and those who are listening. Now, we don't know a lot about this guy. We know just that Jesus said he was wealthy. We don't know if he made all of his money from agriculture. He apparently did make some of it that way, but we don't have to assume that he made it in a questionable way. The scripture doesn't say he did. Uh, he's just a businessman who's done very well, like a lot of other businessmen who do that and make a living. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, verse 17, because if we understand everything we have comes from the Lord and we don't have anything apart from what he gives, then there can be no sin connected with working hard and having things. Now look at verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself. So this becomes a conversation that Jesus is giving them privy to. He's reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Verse 18, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. So Jesus just relays to his hearers that this man needs to expand his business and that isn't so unusual, is it? We hear it today too, perhaps not right now, but we certainly hear it in the economy preceding this whole thing. You know, I need more office space. Uh, you know, I need more warehouse space. We're expanding our sales force, whatever. Um, we're opening a new store in another part of the city or the state or the country. You know, franchises are available. What can Brown do for you? All, all the kinds of stuff that is connected to building businesses and expanding and all that. There's nothing wrong with all of that. And that, that's very common to us. We understand it. And the businessman continues to talk to himself about his plans. And he says this. Look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, so I'm going to talk to myself, I'm going to, I'm going to listen and respond back and forth, have this conversation. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your easy drink and be merry. Now, Scripture doesn't condemn eating and drinking, enjoying a good meal and something everyone looks forward to. In fact, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb, and if I understand it correctly, that's going to be the best meal you will ever set down to in your life. Jesus is not against it. When his disciples came back up on shore, what did he have cooking on the fire? He had some fish. He had some dinner ready. He, eating and drinking and enjoying those things are not wrong. And so don't, you know, don't be, be cast in the, in the, in the mold of society now. If you have something and you, and somebody else doesn't, somehow you're immoral. Okay. That's, that's ridiculous. Scripture doesn't condemn eating and drinking. Scripture doesn't condemn being merry and happy. God has richly supplies us with all things too. What's the last part? Enjoy. So that implies that there is some enjoyment in what he's provided to us. That's not wrong, and that's not immoral. He's put things here in creation for us to enjoy. We're going to look at this later, but why do you think he made a world like this anyway? Okay, Look at the planets that are around us, and then look at this one. He made it for men. Okay, it, Men are the pinnacle of his creation, and he surrounded them with everything for them. Okay, Don't get that wrong either. Man's not the problem. Okay. And it's not the problem with the world. If, you know, like, like the tree huggers will say, if men just went away, everything would be great. No, if everything went away, there'd be no purpose for everything because it was made for people, okay? Now, does sin get involved with it? Yes, it does. And, and, and misuse and, and uh, greed and all those kinds of things. And we'll talk about that. But ultimately in creation, God made all this. Why did he make it? For you to enjoy. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with that. And, and Jesus is expressing here that this man just wants to get to the point where he's not laboring so hard every day. He's building a retirement, if you will, living on the tremendous hard work he's done. 
And we understand that, don't we? You know, the scripture doesn't condemn saving for the future in itself. In fact, and we're going to see this in next week and the weeks to come, one of the requirements, and I say this very clearly, one of the requirements that God gives in handling wealth is saving for the future. That's one of the requirements that he actually says. And actually, saving for the future is part of the priorities of what you do with what you have. You're supposed to put some away. In fact, he uses passages that say, it's the fool who consumes everything that comes in and lays nothing aside for the future. And so we're going to see this over and over again. But the fact of the matter is, he, he's just, he just wants to get to the point where he's not having to work hard every day for every dime, and he's going to be able to relax a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. You understand that. And so savings for the future can't be wrong. Obviously, as we looked at in the first, path, the first time together, he's not spending a buck thirty for every dollar that comes into the family, which is what most Americans are doing right now. They're spending a dollar thirty for every dollar that comes in. So he's not doing that. He has some accumulated, and he needs to build a bigger barn to put his things in there. So there's a lot of things that are just fine about this situation. But then listen to God's response to this man, okay? And, and then it becomes very clear why we're getting this story. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So you put a lot of work into making sure you're going to be comfortable, and there wasn't anything wrong with that, but now you're going to leave it behind, and who's going to own it? Because it's not going to be you. And then he says this, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's the question. Is he a fool for building his business? No. Is he a fool because he built a bigger warehouse? No. Is he a fool because he wants to get to the point where he doesn't have to work so hard for a paycheck every week? No. Is he a fool because he wants to enjoy life a little bit? No. He's a fool because he worked and took care of life here, but he didn't do anything to take care of life there, and that life was beginning that night, and that was his folly. See? That was his folly. There was no folly in working hard and storing up what you worked for, and there was no folly in using some of what God has given you to enjoy life. The folly is that you haven't laid up any treasure in heaven. And the greatest, of course, if you just start at the beginning, the greatest treasure you can lay up and the one you have to start with is repentant faith. That's the beginning. But money is deceptive and it can make it seem as if everything's okay and you don't need repentant faith and that your security is taken care of and that all the tomorrows are going to be comfortable because you built a bigger barn and you built a bigger warehouse and you were ready to go, see? And somehow God's pleased with you and all is well because you have everything you need and material possessions can mask the real need and that was the reason for the parable. This businessman had no concern for eternity and he was good at working hard and investing his money on earth but he hadn't invested anything in the life to come. So is the man, verse 21, who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what do we say as we kind of wrap this, this, this passage up? Build your business. Build the company you work for. You know, Joseph... In Genesis 39, 1 through 6, he is our example, isn't he? He worked hard for Potiphar, didn't he? And, and the Bible says he worked so hard that Potiphar didn't even have to worry about the bread that was on his own table. Now, the Lord had planted Joseph there, didn't he? And he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. And the Lord molded him and sculpted him and chipped off the rough edges and put him in a place so he was ready to be the man that God wanted in the kingdom for the future. By the way, which is the first mention of taxes in the scripture, which the Lord said through Joseph should happen. So, this is where we're headed that way. Just make sure you understand that taxes are part of what we have to pay. And we're going to go back here and look at that. But Joseph is the example. Work hard. You know, make your boss look good. Make the company do well. You're adorning the gospel when you do that, working hard. So build your business and what? Be rich towards God. 
You know, lay up treasure. That's uh, Paul told uh, Timothy in First Timothy. I close our time out. I want to read the rest of this passage, and then we're going to come back to it at another time. But, but Jesus takes a little extra time. So this is the parable that leads us into this next passage. So look at verse 22, chapter 12. And this is how we're going to wrap up today, and we'll go to prayer as soon as we finish, because it has it has its own points, and we don't need to um, we don't need to comment on that. You're going to see. So we move through this passage. Here's this guy who's done so well in this world, but is not rich towards God, and the Lord calls him a fool, and just says that's how everybody is who's rich in this world, but not as it's not rich towards God. And then he says this, and he says to his disciples, because this is obviously difficult for them to hear, because they've all connected to this. If you're wealthy, God must be blessing you, and it's very deceptive. He says this. For this reason, he finishes the parable, and then he says it very, very intimately to them. For this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Verse 23. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn. We just got through talking about that, right? And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, verse 25, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Verse 27, consider the lilies, they neither how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Verse 28, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Verse 21, And do not seek that, seek what you will eat and what you'll drink, and do not keep worrying, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Verse 31. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can you imagine sitting there in that room and hearing that? Would you believe it then? On the, on the end of this story of a guy, just like I'm sure hundreds of guys they knew throughout the course of their life who did the exact same thing. It's like, don't be afraid. Don't keep worrying. The nations seek after these things. You don't have to. You don't have to accumulate all this stuff. Be rich in the next kingdom. Lay up, give to charity, make yourself money belts, but just don't wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. Isn't that in contradistinction to what he just got through looking at with the, with the rich guy here? He wasn't rich in anything in heaven. Here, Jesus says, listen, I've got you. And he speaks just as clearly today as he did then, doesn't he? Because we're just as consumed about it in some ways as we ever were. So my encouragement to you as we look through this and we begin to continue to build our foundation is allow the way that you look at what you have, what has provided, what he may provide or not in the future, in a very, very 
biblical way, a biblical view of material possessions. That's what we're after, building that foundation. So we can move back to 2 Corinthians 8 9, and it just makes so much sense to us as we read through what they knew, obviously, and what the Apostle Paul wanted to make sure everybody else knew that they knew. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're so grateful today that we can be in fellowship, uh, some of us together. Thank you for those who are at home uh, worshiping with us online. We're so so overwhelmed, Lord, that uh, that we have this fellowship and that you've done so much through us and that you've blessed us so much through each other. We're so thankful that you have allowed that to happen. A small glimpse of what heaven will be like and the joy and fellowship that will be ours without interruption. Lord, thank you. Uh, you tell us that even in the midst of trials, we're supposed to thank you and be uh, joyful. So we thank you that even in difficult times that we uh, perhaps have been drawn more to your word, uh, more towards time in your word each day, more towards praying for one another and lifting each other up and meeting immediate needs that we know about and being a light in our neighborhoods. Lord, thank you for those opportunities. I pray that they'll continue. Thank you that we had to look more to you as our supplier, that when we were afraid, we had to think about uh, that you have gladly given us the kingdom and that we don't have to be afraid but to seek your kingdom and your righteousness and the things that we need will be added to us. And Lord, many of us have had to think about that and we thank you that you've drawn us back to that again. So Father, as we apparently coming out of this by your hand, making it less virulent than it was supposed to be, as we prayed so often that you would deliver us, you are beginning to do that and pray you continue to do that around the world. To lift this difficulty from us, but help us to have a renewed and a refreshed appreciation for you that you have accomplished these things. I pray that the world will be drawn to you, that we'll be quick with the, the word of the good news as people seek out answers. And Lord, as we think about these things, personal finances, and the answers to some of the questions we asked earlier this morning, Lord, I pray that you'll conform us. Uh, help us as we begin to understand these things and repent of uh, the sins of idolatry as we found our identity and our security and the things you possess instead of in you. I pray that uh, that we begin to handle those things that we have in a way that's pleasing to you, which puts you in the mix. And even in difficult times, you are able to provide what we need, and even more that we, than we need. And in the difficult times, you uh, find ways to supply for us, and we're so grateful. But you do that when we give you control by uh, our actions and how we manage what you've given us now. And it's not would we, we would give more if we had more. That's really the case. It's what, we're, what are we doing with the $10 we have now? Lord, I pray that you'll just guide us as we answer that question. Thank you for, the, again, a blessing of being together for this time that we depart. Lord, thank you for um, an opportunity to be light in the dark world. I pray that you'll protect those uh, who are exposed and on front lines, Lord, that you might have them be delivered them uh, from this difficult time. Lord, and I pray to help us in whatever comes and whatever you allow us to go through, whether it is the virus or other things that may come into our life as a trial. But we found hopeful and we found faithful and long-suffering that we might come out approved, purified, as your word clearly says is the case. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen.